this morning, we're getting into the book of Revelation. We're getting deeper and deeper into the book of Revelation. And uh, yes, I still say by the end of looking at the churches, we will be raptured. I'm only kidding, but we will be raptured if we have to go into verse three, uh, chapter 3. Anyway, we want to look at this. Last week was the introduction, give you a, a groundwork of what's going on there. This week, uh, my friends, we have a picture of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why the title of this message is Glory Upon Glory, because that's what it is. It's this beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is. And there's all kinds of symbolism behind the things that are said there that it's going to be a little bit difficult to get into all of it, but we're going to get there as best that we can. John continues to describe this encounter with a voice. Uh, he, uh, he starts off with a voice has, a, has encouraged him to turn around, and so he is turning around. And now we're going to describe that voice. He's going to describe that voice. We're going to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, and I'm going to read from there to the end of the chapter. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, to, to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things." As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven, gold, seven lampstands are the seven churches. Today, as we look at this message, John the Apostle is going to get, describe two facets here, two facets of the glory of our Redeemer. Two directions. I don't know if the, the noise is coming in through that door or what, but if we can try to cut that down as much as possible, I'd appreciate it. It's glorious singing, though. One, one thing you can say. There are two facets here. I'm going to describe two facets of the glory of our Redeemer. The first is this. Number one, the glory of His appearance. We see that in verses 12 through 16. And then number two, the glory of his message. We see that in verses 17 through 20. As most of you know, when I was growing up, I was brought up in a Roman Catholic church. I saw the pictures of Jesus all the time. I went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic high school, and then Catholic college. So I saw pictures of Jesus all the time. 
whether it was the first grade or the last grade, it didn't matter. That picture was always lurking over me. Even when I went home, my parents had the compulsory uh, Jesus picture hanging on the wall. You can't get away from it. But none of those pictures give a thimble of an idea of who Jesus is or what he has done. It's just a picture up there that probably isn't even a good depiction of who Jesus is. None of those pictures can say anything about this glorious Savior that we have. None of those pictures, even in the times I was in church, could describe this glory of Jesus Christ. They turned to a lot of other things, saints and ain'ts and all kinds of things, but they didn't turn to Jesus very often. The New Testament writers, listen to this, the apostles recognized Jesus as a man. They knew him. They saw him. They were with him. They also recognized him as God as well. But in all their writings, guess what they did? They neglected to give us a physical description of that man. No, you don't see that anywhere. And I think that was good. Because you know that we would make a mess of it if we had it. And so we come to this portion of Scripture, and John is going to give us a look at the man, but more in a symbolic way of showing us his glory, not of that person that you see there. It's an astounding, i got to tell you, astounding usage of pictures. Pictures mostly out of the Old Testament that John conveys this picture, this portrait, this embodiment of the majestic glory of our great God and Savior. I love John's reaction. Did you see it? John's reaction to what he had seen. It says, and it happens there in uh, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Folks, if you saw Jesus Christ walking in the room, you would see him as he who he is, and hopefully you would be like a dead man. You would be so astounded by that picture. You would be so overcome by that picture. I saw him, and I fell like a dead man. The awe, the wonder... The astonishment was overpowering. He fell at his feet. He's in a comatose state kind of thing. You can't say anything. You know that question that's always asked by the DE people or GE people nowadays. uh, Why should I let you into my heaven? If Jesus asked me that question, how can I even talk? How can I even talk? I don't deserve to be in your heaven. I don't to be deserve to see you. A wretched sinner, that's all that I am. That's all that you are. Glory upon glory has just been revealed to you. What do you think you would do? Think about it for a little bit. What do you think you would do seeing him, the resurrected Lord, the resurrected Master? Now let's look at this text of Scripture. And we're going to look at the first facet. The first facet is the glory of his appearance. And we're going to go through this, and we're going to try to give you that glorious picture there. In Revelation 1.12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, 
And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, wait a minute. We haven't gotten into the picture of Jesus yet. What's the first thing that he notices? Not Jesus. The lampstands. He notices it. He's looking for the voice or the the direction of where the voice came from. He's looking for who is speaking to him. But the first thing that he sees is the seven golden lampstands. The first facet around the the glory of his appearance here is the lampstands. What? The surroundings is what John is looking at. This is the first thing that caught his eye. You see, folks, this is what happens. If he turns like this and he turns around and he sees these lampstands which have light on them, guess what he's going to look at? The light. That's what he did. He turned around to see, and and he sees these lampstands which have the light on them, and that's what caught his eye. John does not start by describing the Messiah. He starts by describing the surroundings, the seven golden lampstands, and they have much imagery. We're going to look at that just for a little bit, just so you have a picture of it. But turn to Exodus chapter 25 with me, just to get a little bit of a picture of the imagery that is here. And in Exodus 25, verse 31, Moses says this, Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. When you look at the Old Testament, when you see God giving direction of how to make things, it's perfect. He doesn't let it go off just a little bit. It's always perfect. I love that about Exodus. You know, you, you get there and you go, why am I reading this? For, for folks, look at the perfection that he's demanding. Now, verse 37, and we're not going to stay in this whole thing here for very long, but verse 37, then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamp so as to shed light on the space in front of it. So that's why they're there. They're, they're supposed to show light. They're supposed to bring light to the situation. Now, there's one other place that I want to look at, and it's Zechariah. We went through Zechariah a long time ago. But Zechariah chapter 4, in verse 2, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 2, and it says this, He said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. So we get a picture. This is in Old Testament imagery. And it stands for something. John actually says it. He tells us. He gives us a hint of what it is. Not even a hint. He he actually represents it. You see that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 20. And it says there where John says this, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. See, the imagery that's there is that John is standing amongst, I should say Jesus is standing amongst the churches when he's standing amongst the lampstands. Keep that in mind, folks. The seven lampstands are the churches. And the number seven means completion. So from my point of view, and I'm going to say from my point of view because i got to tell you, the commentators were all over the the, the bus on this thing. They were all over the place. Um, I believe that this is showing 
that Jesus is giving us a complete picture of what the church is in the seven different kinds of churches that we're going to examine in the weeks and the days ahead. He's among them. Jesus is among the churches. Jesus hasn't abandoned the churches. Somebody once asked me, if you've got somebody in the pulpit who's preaching heresy and there's a Christian in there, I said, there probably is a Christian in there. They just don't know well enough to get out of there. I mean, I, I've had friends. I had a lady from Louisiana call me once. Not, I, I love Louisiana. I haven't been there yet. I want to get there. And she told me what they had to do. They had to drive three hours to Houston, Texas to get to a good church because there wasn't anything in the area. So, Carl, that's the next place we need to play, plan a church, Louisiana. She actually asked me to come there. This was 30 years ago. I said, you don't know what you're going to get, so you may not want me. I have a New York accent. <laughs> anyway, there's, there's very little out there, folks, in some places to be able to make a choice. The imagery is profound. Jesus is walking among the churches. All the churches. Jesus walks among the churches. Jesus cares for the church, folks. Jesus leads the church. And he does that through his word, and he does it through worship. John continues in verse 13. He says, And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Here's where John finds the voice. He he discovers where the voice is coming from, and he begins to give a description of that voice. Please note, Jesus is among the lampstand. He's among the churches. This is important, folks. Because we need to remember, just as Yahweh did not abandon the Jews, the fleeing Jews in the desert, Jesus is not going to abandon his church. He's always going to be there ready to minister to his church, ready to take care of the needy, ready to take care of the persecuted, ready to take care of the neglected. That's what he does. He puts it on the heart of someone else to help. John says, I saw one like a son of man. Without a doubt, this reminds me, hopefully all of us, of Daniel chapter 7. Why don't you turn there? Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, we we see this son of man mentioned there. Daniel 7. Look at verse... 13, Daniel 7, 13, and it says there, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and his hair of his head like white pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire, a river of life. Now, guess what? I'm reading the wrong verse here. Thank you for letting me know. (laughs) verse 13, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and 
Men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Folks, like the Son of Man, the Son of Man, the divine Son of God, without a doubt, this is one of Jesus' favorite expressions of himself, how he describes himself. He does this particular expression of a self as a son of man over 80 times in the Gospels. Over 80 times. This is the one who possesses all divine authority. This is not just a son, but the son. A particular son is the son of God. Here are just some of the references, and you don't need to jump there, but if you are quick with your Bible, please do so. But Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, and I'll make sure I read the right verse this time. Matthew 8, verse 20, and it says there, Jesus said this to him. Notice it's Jesus speaking. The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Speaking of himself, calling himself the Son of of man. Stay in Matthew chapter 9, verse 6. It says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Who has authority to forgive sins? God. Only God to forgive sins. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, go home. Now look at Mark 10, 23. Mark, Gospel of Mark, verse 33. And it says, they're saying, behold... We are going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is letting them know where they're going. And, you know, as a a, uh, Bible study person, I always wondered, what does he mean going up? You're in Galilee. Why would you be going up? Well, when I was in Israel my first time, I was going from uh, Galilee to Jerusalem. I was in my tour bus. We got behind a tank, and I noticed we kept going up the mountain. And so it's not that you're going up, like going up to Northern California. You're going up the mountain to get to Jerusalem because it's a mountain. Mark 10, 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So he's telling you what's going to happen there. He's designated himself the Son of God. And then again in John 6, 27. John 6, 27. I mean, these are significant things that he's saying here about himself. And in John 6, 27, it says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God has set his seal. Folks, he's the only way of salvation. He's the only way of eternal life. The Son of Man will give to you. And then John, staying in the book of John, one last one here, John thirteen 
31 and then John 13 31 John says this or says that Jesus says therefore when he had gone out Jesus said now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him speaking of the end This designation by Jesus of being the Son of Man was to identify himself as human. He's trying to identify with us that he lived these 33 or so years, whatever it was exactly that he was on this earth, tempted in all things like you are, yet without sin. He was trying to tell us, you know what? I don't have to do that. I don't have to sin. I can make the choice not to sin. But then when I do make that choice, I don't want to brag to anybody that I just made that choice because then that's called pride. There's all kinds of things that we need to see here. He sees himself as human. He's wanting us to see him as human. He was indicating that he was among the fallen humanity for the purpose of redeeming that fallen humanity. One commentator said this, the Son of Man... Quote, the Son of Man is divine, dwells in eternity, possesses ultimate authority, and is the sovereign of an indestructible kingdom. Because that human is going to then have his kingdom come. His kingdom come, that which we are looking forward to. That which I mentioned yesterday that Ella is now being able to enjoy. I can't wait for that day. John is now going to put forth, please see this, Eight different features. Eight different features. In his attempt to try to describe this glorious visage that he has before him, as he turned around and he sees this person there, he's trying to give us a description of what he sees. He's going to use eight different features. John wants his readers to see this overwhelming sight, this magnificent, this glorious picture of their Jesus, the risen Savior. This is the first feature. Christ is portrayed in his priestly role here. He's portrayed in his priestly apparel is what we see there. You remember the priest in the Old Testament was the one who tended to the lamps and the one who uh, used to keep all of that up to date. They would take out the old wicks and they put in the new wicks. They'd take out the old oil, they put in the new oil. They'd refill the oil lamps and they, they would keep the light burning. That was what they were to do. Keep the light burning. Jesus Christ's priestly duty among the church is similar. Commending the church, correcting the church, warning the church so that the light doesn't go out. That's what Jesus does even today. He doesn't want your light to go out. He doesn't want our light to go out. He wants it to keep burning. And frankly, folks, sometimes he'll even do things that make it different, like having to uh, deliver um, stoves to people who don't have a home anymore. I think of Bruce and, and, and Amy and what they're doing there. It's just absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. The first feature of this description of glory is in verse 13. Here, here it is, clothed in the robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. 
First thing I think of when I see that kind of picture is royalty. That's what comes to my mind. It's royalty. But it's not the royalty that we have here on earth. That's fallen. That's ugly. He's absolutely majestic and perfect. They are imperfect. You can see all the squabbling that goes on in Buckingham Palace. Jesus is high priest, not just prophet, not just king. The robe there is an indication of his majesty. But to reemphasize this robe, there is another picture added. And it says there, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. This second feature is the golden sash indicating high rank. And obviously, in this case, it's the highest of high rank. You can't get any higher. The sash is to be worn, was to be worn by the Old Testament priest. There were instructions for the priest of what he was to do with that sash, and we find that that in Exodus 28, Exodus 28, verse 4. Exodus 28, 4, and it says this, These are the garments which they shall make a breast piece and an ephod and the robe and a tunic, checkered work, a turban and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, his brother, your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. So we can see this again is that priestly role that Jesus Christ takes. This priestly role, this sash here is in conjunction with the robe and with other accoutrements which we're not going to get into and they're not even mentioned here necessarily. I have a well-known Bible teacher who this week is celebrating 54 years at Grace Community Church and uh, John MacArthur explains that picture and I loved it. This picture is of Jesus the high priest who went through the temptations of life knows the wonderful salvation God has for them, meaning the people. The high priest, Jesus Christ, is far superior to the Old Testament priest who had to offer sacrifices day in and day out. See, folks, in these features that we're looking at, the robe, the sash, there is a link here that is trying to be made to the humanity of Christ, and at the same time, to show forth his deity as well. Jesus Christ is the incarnate risen Lord. He's glorified here. Christ is given the role of priest. And folks, with this role also comes the role of judge. Judge. He's walking about judging the churches. When we get to Ephesus and Sardis and Pergamon and all of those others, you can see he's judging them. You're going to hear it loud and clear of how he judges them. I got to tell you, that's happening today. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but you can see some churches are closing their door. Why? They've been judged. They've been judged. This is a wonderful picture here. Wonderful salvation. Keeping the church's light on is Jesus' responsibility on what he does. In some cases, as we will learn, he brings judgment on the church. But he's going about keeping the light on. 
in Ukraine, which you were just hearing about, yeah, the major electrical grid hasn't gone out, but there are places where it goes out daily. Even in the teaching at the class, Brian Kinzel was there just recently, and he said the lights would go out and they just keep teaching. The lights would go out and they just keep teaching. Reminded me of being in India. First time I was there and the lights went out and I said, I guess that's it. Everybody's flashlight went on and I said, no, keep going. Good. I, went, I just, oh, I guess you were prepared for that. <laughs> the third feature is found in verse 14. His head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. Uh, to me, that gives me a picture of wisdom. You know, somebody who's lived a few years and, and has some time under his belt, so to speak. Daniel 7, 9 is a beautiful description of the Ancient of Days, which I was already reading. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his vesture was like white as snow, and his hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. You know, when you come before judgment, do you know the thing that they used to do in the ancient times? That the king's throne was up high. You were down low. And when you looked up at him, the thing that you saw was his feet. Remember that. A picture of God Almighty is here. At the, at the same time, is a picture of Jesus Christ. These Old Testament descriptions were being used to authenticate and to unite Jesus Christ in the Godhead. This description of the Father God is transferred here into a picture of an exalted member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. All that is happening here is, in this description is confirming the deity of Jesus Christ. And if I could put it this way, it's the glorious Christological theology that we have here of the Messiah Jesus is going on. White here has the idea of one who has wisdom and accumulated dignity. Fourth feature that's here. And his eyes were a flame of fire. Once again, the Old Testament gives a picture of blazing eyes. I'm going to take you there to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. And it says there, his body was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches, his arms and his feet like the gleam of bron uh, polished bronze, and the sound of his words was like a sound of tumult. Now, go back to Revelation, and guess what happens in Revelation chapter 2? We have a, a description of that in Revelation chapter 2 to the church of Thyatira, and it says there, the Son of God, ha who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, it's a picture, the full picture. Why blazing eyes? Why blazing eyes? Some say it is because the Lord himself sees into the heart. He's into the very heart of man. Into every single situation his eyes see. But I would add this conclusion, folks, is that this is a picture not only of those flaming eyes, but it's a picture of judgment. To see George, the, the, the George, the, the judgment. <laughs> I don't mean George here is a judgment. <laughs> but the judgment of God can see into every heart. These penetrating eyes penetrate 
to the very boardroom of every church, these penetrating eyes to the very pulpit of every church, and folks, even into every pew. Every person who's sitting there, the penetrating eyes can even get into the heart of the person who hasn't even said those words yet because God knows what's going on in their heart. So far, we've seen a robe, we've seen a sash, we've seen white hair, we've seen flaming eyes, and now a fifth feature. This fifth feature is found in uh, verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. This is where I said about the feet that are judgment. This, this portrait here, this description here, is of the strength and the soundness of the beauty of these feet. This picture gives the idea of complete strength and stability of person. This quality shows how the, with swiftness the Almighty moves among the churches in judgment. The strength of these feet is our picture of those judgment of those churches. We looked at Revelation 2.18 already, but as we look at these fifth and sixth features, progression is going on here. It's the protecting of God's people. The judgment of God's people is going on. That's what's going on. The sixth feature, I want to make sure that we can get through this today, that's found here, is found in verse 15. Revelation 1.15. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of going to Niagara Falls. How many have gone to Niagara Falls? Have you ever tried to talk to the person next to you when those rivers are flowing over the Niagara Falls? I don't mean go there in the dead of winter. But go there when they're flowing, and you can't talk to the person right next to you. I did a wedding once at the ocean, and you know what? They never heard me, and I declared that I would never do another wedding at the ocean. It's not because I need to be heard, because they need to know when to say I do. It's impossible. But this is what's the description of his voice, the loudness of his voice. Loud like many waters. It's not screaming, okay? Folks, it's profound. That's the difference. It's not screaming to be heard, yell, you know, across a ball field or something. No, this is too profound. That's what happens. The last three features are located in verse 16. And it says this in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining sun in its strength. As we first wrap the, the first uh, facet of his glory, that is his appearance, there are some unusual ways that he's being described here. Especially here, number seven. The seven stars in his right hand what in the world could that be? How could that be a description of a person? But it's exactly the description of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows that he's in complete control. He's in complete control as he holds on to them. The seven stars are the angels of the churches. 
They're described in verse 20. It says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. We're going to discuss that more next week, but that's what he's doing there. In Revelation 2.1 and in Revelation 3.1, the stars will also appear. And as you read those verses, the same kind of thing. Christ walks among the church. I don't know how you can grasp how important that is, that Christ walks among the church. For those of you who are in fear, Christ walks among the church. For those of you who are not trusting, Christ walks among the church. For you who this week want to pay your bills and there were more checks but there was no more money, Christ walks among the church. You can trust him. This whole COVID thing, you can trust him. There's nothing to fear. Nothing. That's what he does. He's walking among the church. The Lord is in complete control. Yes, the world looks like it's out of control, doesn't it? You can't have a balloon go over your country and check out all your silos and all of this kind of stuff. No, the Lord is in control. Doesn't matter. Price of gas gets a six, seven, eight, twelve dollars. Doesn't matter. The Lord is in control. Verse 17 says that in his right hand, let's look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, but he placed his right hand on me. Look what Jesus does. He places his hand on the man John and says, I've got this under control. I am taking care of this. I don't know how you think about that, but I can go to bed at night and have a good night's sleep and not have to worry about anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what people say. I once had a pastor at Grace Church years ago say somebody wrote something about him and, and he got all worried about it. I said, what are you worried about what they think? Worry about what God thinks. That's what you need to worry about. I believe that he's communicating comfort, prophetic message of the things to come. And so we're going to hear that next week. But here's the eighth feature. And out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. You know, as a new Christian, I kept asking myself, how do you get a sword in your mouth? And why would you want it to be two-edged if you did? And so I'd ask that kind of thing. And, and it's a, a sharp sword, yes, that's, that's for sure, the Lord Jesus Christ stands protecting the church. Do you know there are wolves in the midst of the church? How do I know that? Paul warned us in Acts 20. He says, there are savage wolves among you. He was speaking of the elders of the Ephesian church. So yes, there could be elders who are savage wolves among you. And if there are elders of savage wolves... It could be all kinds of heresy. I remember the night that we were doing the right hand of fellowship. This is when new members come in. We used to do it a little bit different. And uh, they, all of the new members would be standing up in the front there, and the elders would come by first. Okay, and we'd welcome into the church, and as we're going down the line, 
there's a man there speaking to one of the persons becoming uh, a member, and he's saying this is a bad church, this is a terrible church, they have terrible doctrine, this kind of thing. And one of the elders who came behind him is listening to him and saying, what in the world are you doing? And, and uh, you know, if somebody had some theology called Phil Johnson and, and told him to stop there, and the guy wasn't going to stop. He was a member of our church. I used to have a woman who was in one of our Bible studies who was trying to promote some kind of out-of-body experience kind of thing in the Bible study. I, I told no, 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 you can't do that. The Bible study leader told me about it. She went to another Bible study. It was another Faith Builders Bible study. I said, no, you can't do that. There are heretics among you. How are you going to know them? You better know the word. You better know the word. You have to watch out for those kinds of people. You have to be careful of those kinds of people. This eighth feature here is out of his mouth came a two-edged sword. What a picture. It's a picture of protection. The Lord Jesus Christ stands protecting the church from those wolves and, and frankly, folks, even from the government. Out of his mouth is a present participle, meaning it's a divine word continuously comes protecting his people, but at the same time, making judgment. Protecting, but making judgment on the enemy. And frankly, even on those who call themselves Christians who aren't living that Christian life. You see, there are those who think they are the church. They spread lies, deception in the true church. I was with my wife, and we were visiting a church in another part of the country, and this man was saying things, and my wife put her hand on me and says, please do not stand up and yell heretic. (laughs) I'm serious, because she could see I was becoming agitated with what he was saying. I wasn't going to just walk out. I was going to call him a heretic. She said, please don't do this. My sister and brother-in-law would be upset. (laughs) Folks, it was terrible. It's horrible. But it was heresy. You see, there are people in the church that sow discord. There are people in the church that want to sow untruth, saying that it's truth, and, and they want to bring blame on the church. But Jesus stands there, and he protects. In a sense, God will through judgment, personally deal with these enemies. Say there in Revelation, Revelation 2.12, says this, And the angel of the church of Pergamos write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Here's the one with the sharp two-edged sword, what they're going to do. Verse 16, Therefore repent or else... I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He's going to take care of them. The the imagery of the sword actually originates all the way back in Isaiah. Why don't you turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. And it says there, But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. 
with the rod of his mouth, he will take care of those who are afflicted. The, the word there, that, that whole idea there, you think of Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, able to pierce bone and marrow, able to discern what's the intent of the heart. Hebrews 4.12, that's what it does. It cuts what's necessary to be able to get to the truth. The word can bring comfort. The word can bring salvation. The word can bring conviction. Yet, it boldly brings warning and judgment. There's two sides to that. And you need to remember that. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 said this. Don't need to turn there. He says this, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Folks, if you hear a false teacher, go to the Scriptures. Don't let them continue. If it's in a Bible study, make a warning if you hear false teaching. Beloved, this Word of God is the same Word that brought the world into existence. This word of God will bring about judgment on the ungodly. That's what's going to happen. There will be a judgment. Even to the greatest of enemies, there's going to be a judgment, folks. Second Thessalonians 2.8 says this, Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay. How? With the breath of his mouth and bring an end to the appearance of his coming. That's what's going to happen. So that word is there. The two-edged sword. The ninth and the final feature of the ascended Lord is found in verse 16, at the end of verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. Can you imagine seeing the shining face of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What incredible picture. You know, as, as that Roman Catholic growing up, that picture that was on the wall was nothing. Was nothing. Was useless. That picture, that portrait of my Savior, of what He has done, you know where is a good picture? Is going back all the way to Matthew chapter 17. That is the place of the Mount of Transfiguration. John, Peter, get to see this glorious opportunity. Do you know what John could remember? And maybe that's why he's even using this description. I would hope he could remember 60 years previous, as I do. I remember everything that happened 60 years ago. Sure. But he remembers, especially the Mount of Transfiguration, you're going to remember. And it says there in verse 2, it says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his his garments became as white as light that is an incredible picture folks that that is an astounding picture that he could remember from 60 years previous and now he sees it once again we've not had that experience we're going to have that experience if we know him but we have to know him we can't just guess that we know him 
We can't just think that we know him. We can't just go by our church attendance or even anchored attendance, although that does help. No. (laughs) Folks, do you really know the Savior? And not just his picture. Not just that picture that's hanging on the wall, but do you have him in your heart? Today we've looked at nine features of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to remind you of those. A robe, a sash showing his priesthood, priestly uh, aspect, his white hair, which shows the wisdom, the flaming eyes of, of judgment that's there, the bronze feet of judgment as well, the powerful voice that you must listen to, the seven stars to know he's complete in his judgment and, and his walking among the churches, the two-edged sword where he uses the scriptures to be able to divide the good, the bad, and the ugly, and the shining face, which... That's what we look forward to. Remember, there are two facets. And I know we use two different kind of outlines here. Two facets to see the glory of our Redeemer. Today we looked at his appearance. Next week we're going to look at his word and his voice and what he has to say. I hope you're here for that. I hope you stay healthy this week. But let's close in prayer. Father, as we uh, think through this message, as we think about what you have done for us in sending your Son, your only Son, your only begotten Son, that you sent him to live this life, live it perfectly, without sin, tempted in all things like we are, yet, dear God, he took our punishment, not his punishment. He took our punishment that we deserve, rightly deserve, went to the cross bore our sins upon himself. I think even of that day where he asks you if he could have that cup removed from him because, not because of the pain, not because of the suffering, but because you could not look at him at that point. Dear Father, we want to see that face, that glorious face. All, I pray, that are here today want to see that glorious face. Pray this in your name. Amen.